Uh, and actually, yeah, keep the lights up because we're not going to be using the... Uh, I listened to Ryan do his lesson and uh, just the sheer frustration in his voice made me say, I'm not doing that. Uh, Ryan actually in a staff situation the other day said, boy, if you thought I got upset, imagine what Jim would do if he gets in the middle of that. So I just thought I'd, I'd bypass that. Um, so there literally are two sheets back there. One is like this, which will allow you to, uh, to kind of work through it on your own. And then the other one is uh, what I want to kind of share with you in terms of my thoughts. And again, um, this is not the only way to do it. But I, 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 I discovered something kind of fun that I'm, I'm looking forward to telling you. Any grammar people in here, like good at English grammar? Raise your hand. I mean, okay, so we've got one. Anybody else? One, two, so a few of you are. I want to... Are you really? Okay, okay. Um, but there's, 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 there's kind of something interesting as we kind of walk through here where I, I think I found a translational problem with the ESV and interestingly enough, the NLT got it right. So I thought that was kind of a, a kind of a neat thing and we'll, we'll kind of walk through that. But this style sometimes just helps you see how words connect together and it really answers one, one, one fun conversation that we should have tonight. Um, it'll really give you a great example of looking for why or how things happen. And so sometimes by circling a really what we would mostly consider like an insignificant word, you're like, oh, but that actually makes sense. If that's the means through which that takes place, oh, that kind of changes the entire discussion. And we'll unpack that as we go along. So one sheet for you to doodle on, um, another sheet for you to see my, uh, my sketching. And uh, let's pray, then we'll jump into the text. God, we come before you as your people and grateful for you and for all that you have done for us. And Father, may we always, at the very center of that, think of Christ. Um, and so God, it is, um, as I get older, I guess maybe more, uh, I'm more aware of the limitations of this life and even the limitations of the greatest things of this life. Um, the more, I guess, I'm uh, hopefully having my heart and my mind gravitate towards you and my final home. And I pray that, Father, that would be uh, a work that you would do on all of us, that by reading your word, um, by being saturated by biblical ideas, that we really would um, be made more godly and that it wouldn't be trapped up in the things that we eat or the uh, kind of the basic behaviors of life, but that it ha would have at its heart our love for Jesus. And so, God, we really don't want to throw out um, just the importance for us to live a godly life. And I'm, I'm looking forward to even teach how Paul helped us see that in this text. But, uh, but God, it is easy for us to go wayward and to miss the point of you, the creator of all good things. And, Father, truly, may we uh, receive today's instruction from, from this incredible letter uh, with open hearts and open minds. Uh, may our, our uh, lives and marriages and families be transformed by the words that we will read. And it's in Christ's name I trust all these things. Amen. So we are in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Last week, Ryan walked you through uh, the admonitions or the challenges, particularly around the two offices of elder and deacon. 
One of the things that he stressed in the lesson was that, especially the word deacon literally means servant, or it could also, another English word would actually be minister. We really get hung up with words, and I think that on the one hand, it is good for us to be uh, careful with how we use words. Words carry meaning, words carry uh, important meanings, and so I think it's good for us to, uh, to say, hey, let's, are, are, you, are you being careful with the way that you use that word? Are you being exact with the way? Are you trying to be more loose with that particular word? But I, I definitely came from, in the time of my uh, education, it came from a time where within our movement there were a lot of questions about what you would call a pastor. There's a big debate about, do you call them a pastor? Do you call them a minister? Do you call them a shepherd and what I love to be reminded of is that all of these words are English words that are trying to get at it but it's like what are you trying to drive at what matters most and what matters most as Ryan relayed last last week in the first Timothy material is that elders would be men above reproach and that they would be caregivers that they would exemplify who Jesus Christ is and everything that they would do that they would aspire to this i love this line that ryan used last week he said you know we we really question that idea of aspiring leadership but when jesus says this is how you lead you, you don't lead like the pagans lead you don't lead like the gentiles do where you lord it over others you actually lead by washing feet you actually lead by subjecting yourself and serving others and ryan said and for people who want to lead like that, that is a good thing. It is a good thing if that's how you understand leadership. And so that's really kind of setting the stage for this, that as Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, and as Timothy is sharing with them these confessional truths, The confession, the great confession about who Jesus Christ is and what is happening as he is describing the doctrinal element or this great confession, he is helping them recognize that this confession is based on the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And we are going to continue that by appointing elders, these men of character, of good doctrine, who also have sound conduct. And another way that we could word this, and I keep doing it all the time, is conduct is orthopraxy and confession is orthodoxy. The more that I look at the Bible and the more that I see these things, the more that I uh, recognize how critical it is that we never throw out what we believe and we never try to make light of how we behave. And these things aren't separate ideas. It's not, well, why can't we just love each other more? Sure. But you know that you just made like an appeal. Why should we love one another more? And you're going to kind of give me some kind of confessional. Why? Because God is love. That's why. Because God made us. And now all of a sudden you're preaching doctrine. So whenever you ask the question or you ever you deal with the why piece, you are almost always going to go have to go back to some kind of a truth statement, which is why doctrine ultimately matters. That's why that believing piece is what separates Christian from non-Christian, believer from unbeliever, so someone who doesn't have a confession. And so that's what we did last week. We looked at the idea of elders and we looked at the idea of deacons as examples of conduct and ones who hold to the confession. And then Paul continues in chapter 3, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Now, the first thing I noticed with this text, and this might not matter to you, but for those of you that 
um, maybe they ask questions a little bit more than the average person, or uh, maybe you're uh, kind of watching some show again on the usually Discovery Channel or the History Channel. Um, the scholarship of the 15, 16, 1700s began to cast a really long shadow over certain New Testament books, particularly their authorship. And First and Second Timothy are books that within a number of uh, liberal scholars are not considered to be books that were written by Paul. What you may hear, what you may actually see on a show is that we know that First and Second Timothy and Titus were not written by Paul. Um, they were written much later, and the reason why they would argue that is because the, 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 the developed understanding, the fact that there are now presbyters, there are elders and deacons, this, this is something that was in the church much, 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 much later on. And they talk about the, the creedal statements to the immortal, to the invisible God. Like, Paul doesn't talk about like that in his earlier letters. So because of stylistic differences, because of theological developments, they say, listen, it's, it's not that it's not a bad book. I'm sure these teachings are teachings that Paul had, but generation after generation after generations later, someone decided to kind of stand up and to pen in the name of Paul and in the spirit of Paul this letter. Okay? And a lot of people would argue that, actually, a lot of um, commentaries, ones, commentaries that are actually good in some elements and then bad in others would argue that this book was not written by Timothy. Now, some of you just go, and, and, my, and I love my wife, she, she, she's this way, my wife and my mom are this way. They just look at verse 1 of chapter 1, right? Andrea, tell me I'm wrong. And you were just, sorry, you would, uh, where is it? Da, 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 da. Right, yeah, verse one, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, first word. Paul. And Andrew goes, obviously it's Paul. Right? And many of you get that. Many of you kind of, how many of you have that mentality? It says it's Paul, it's Paul. Yeah, okay, so you get that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not actually like that. <laughs> I'm the one that goes, well, I mean, but it could have been somebody else that was writing like, I mean, it could have been, some, I mean, I'm going to ask that question. And then there are those who really cast a long shadow on this, but to just clear the air, I believe Paul wrote this letter. And one of the reasons why, and I thought this was very interesting, one of the commentaries brought this up, is that this is, by the way, the very first time in this letter that Paul kind of states the I. Because if you go back and you look at chapter one, it's Paul and, uh, let, me get the, let me get my glasses here. Um, when he begins to describe in terms of who he is, uh, who is actually writing this with him, it's not just himself that is involved in this process. And so here Paul now is making this exerted emphasis on who he is and what he's doing. And here's the problem that I would have with, the, um, with someone else kind of speaking for him. This kind of historical piece doesn't really make much sense if somebody is writing it to pretend they're Paul. Right? It would be more of merely a doctrinal level, but yet there are times in this letter where Paul seems to be speaking about specific instances that happen. And this is what I do believe we should hold on to, is that when that kind of integrity begins to be challenged, when now all of a sudden the author is uh, trying to intentionally deceive about a delay or about some specific aspects within Paul's life, now we've got some real problems. Now all of a sudden it's not just a matter of writing with the spirit of. Now it's like, no, there's actually something really broken with this. So the Apostle Paul is writing this, and I've always loved those moments where the Apostle Paul is uh, kind of 
opening up himself a little bit and saying, listen, I, I really hope to come to you soon, but I want you to know that should I not make it to you, should I not get to you, that this is what I want you to do. And he goes back to something that he set forth at the very beginning, which is this is why I cast you to remain in Ephesus. Because you need to do two things. Number one is that you need to teach the right things and confront false teachers. And you need to not only have good conduct yourself, but you need to demand that the believers around you have conduct that is becoming of a believer. And so a couple of times the use of the word I in that first verse. And then notice how he says in verse 15, because if I delay, you need to know how one ought to believe. So this is a direction uh, or a command both to Timothy, you need to know this, and then I want you to share this with those around you in terms of the, the family of God as he continues in verse 15, uh, one, how one ought to behave in the household of faith. And that word household gives us this concept which is so important. The word household comes from a, a kind of a string of Greek words, oikos, which is the word for house. Those household words give the impression that what we are a part of is a family. And it is so critical that we get that. When you look back at the previous section for elders and deacons, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, one of the primary themes that you see here is that the conduct of an elder who is appropriate, or a deacon who is appropriate, or a deaconess who is appropriate, the primary issue that is at stake is what? Is that in their family, they know how to behave themselves. So I, I want a husband who loves his wife, who's devoted to his wife. I want like a, a, a father who is going to know how to control his children. I want a, a person who can, and it's all family idea, it's all family metaphor, because the question becomes, if he can't manage this, the family, then how can he manage, in essence, God's family? So these two things are closely related to one another. It also helps us see that when it comes to the issue of family, okay, this, this whole idea of confession and conduct, it is A, a doctrine that you and I are brothers in Christ or brother and sister in Christ, that this is actually who we are and that shapes our relationship. Now, what's interesting is my dad was really big on this. My dad had lots of rules based on the fact that we were family, right? So rules with my sister, you don't do this because she's your sister. Like you don't hit your sister, right? You just don't do that. Like, and we're family, and he would have these natural, extended ideas. Since we're family, this is how we treat one another. How many of you have done this in your home? We're family, so this is how we treat one another, okay? Makes sense. So our conduct and our con the confession that we are, in fact, family, and that family, this is the fun part of it for, maybe it's fun, I think it's fun, that we are in an eternal family. Like, this isn't something that's just temporary. This is why the Bible, and Paul especially, really strongly asserts that you don't take for granted those that are sitting around you. That you, in essence, the reason why I'm so, such a big fan of that gathering component, that we experience life together, 
is that I am amazed, as I read the scriptures, I am amazed how close Jesus thinks you and I are and should be. And we use that kind of language, brother and sister. And I, I think a lot, I mean, it didn't really make sense to me until I had kids. And some of the most painful experiences I've had as a parent is when my children didn't care for each other. Some of the most upset I've ever been are when my children were arguing and fighting with one another. I remember an episode, it was on a Wednesday night actually, one of our sons to quit picking on one of our other sons and he kind of would listen to me and then I found out after this really, really strong warning, I found out that he had done it all over again and I just remember coming home from Wednesday going, I know I'm supposed to be at peace right now but I think I wanna go to war with my son and I just remember being like so angry with him. Why? Why are you getting so bent out of shape? because they're my children. It also helps us see this biblical idea. So here we are, and here God is. This beautiful God, which exists in Father, Son, Spirit. Okay, so it's, there's one God. So it's not one God existing, Father, Son, Spirit, and there is unity, there is unison within them, integrity and unity, and there's a relationship in the Godhead, okay? And then there's us, brothers and sisters. And we live in relationship with one another, okay? And I love this idea that the closer you and I grow towards God, very naturally, actually, what should happen. The closer any of us grow towards God, what happens to us? We grow closer to each other. And this should be like a natural byproduct of what Christ-likeness looks like. So this is the reason why I have a real hard time with people who talk about really spiritual people who are not connected to the body. How can you not be, how can you be disconnected from the body of Christ, disconnected from other brothers and sisters, and yet still be like someone who is trying to honor God. If your kid said, I'm never coming home again, I really don't have any need to come home. I don't wanna see you at Christmas, I don't wanna see you at Thanksgiving, I've got no interest, I've got some friends now, and I don't want anything to do with you. You don't look at him and go, well that's great. This, is, this family's really coming together. You don't do that. You go, that's like, son, that's not, that's not what family is about. That, that actually is, would do, will destroy part of our, part of our family will die, you behave like that. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is helping Timothy help the church see. And he needs elders and deacons who are modeling this in their home, who then come to church and model it in the church. And it is the household of faith. And so that kind of admonition is really important for us to recognize. He is using these words, obviously, intentional. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the healthy things. Uh, one of the reasons why, and this is really kind of a, uh, I've, I've dealt with this on, on multiple levels. But when you look at, when you look at, let, let's just deal with some issues like that would have to do with like sexuality issues, right? 
Um, I love to say to young men who are struggling with issues like pornography, um, like, would you, would you think of those thoughts about your sister? To which, like a well-adjusted person, right, would say, well, no. No, I wouldn't think of my sister that way. That's like wrong. Hmm. So this person here, are they your sister? This is Paul's admonition in Timothy. This is how we treat one another, as brothers and sisters. Um, so it really cleans up our sexual ethic, doesn't it? I have a wife, and then everyone else in here is like a sister, right? I would never, I would never, I would never take advantage of my sister sexually. I would never try to seduce, but that's just, that's just completely inappropriate. Why would I do that? And then my sister in Christ, what is she? See, the family analogy really helps us move it into another realm. I would never take advantage, I hope I wouldn't. Again, this is, if you've got your, if you've got things kind of, you don't have a conscience that's been seared, but I wouldn't take advantage of my sister financially, right? Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to exploit her or, I mean, I mean, not unless I'm really kind of messed up. She's family. So why would you do that with Christian people? Why would you act that way? I remember um, kind of when Andrew and I first started going into ministry and uh, dealing with the question about how, how, how do we kind of walk through the process of knowing that this church is right for us and we're right for the church. And much like with, in a lot of areas of business, I had two different professors that gave me two different ways of looking at the church. And one of them had more of a, uh, he was a great man. I mean, I'm really grateful for his, uh, for his influence on my life, but he had kind of more of a dot the I's and cross the T's mentality. And he would talk about, well, when you, when you meet with an eldership, you ask doctrinal questions, and then you talk about the particulars. How many days off do I get and how much and what is, you know, all the all kind of normal stuff that you have. And then I had this other friend of mine and I asked him, my mentor, I asked him, I said, so how, how do you handle it? And he said, well, we're family. So I kind of handle it like family. I just kind of believe that elders and deacons and those that I'll be working with and working under, that they'll treat me like a son. And, and so I really don't worry about a lot of those particulars. I'm kind of more looking like for family type connections. And he said, now, Jim, I don't know if that's the only way to do it. And I remember going, I think I want to do it your way, <laughs> right? I, again, I'm not trying to cast a dark shadow against my other brother, but I just remember liking this. And so whenever I would get into a situation where I would meet with elders or I would meet with even the trustees at the college when I, when I worked there, I remember being ready. And the question I would then ask would just be this, will you treat me like your son? That's all I want to know. Will you treat me like, first of all, are you good to your son? <laughs> and then the second one is, would you, would you treat me like a son? Would you do that? Like as you think about how much I should make, would you just treat me like, because if you'll treat me like a son, I'm okay with whatever that is. Like whatever it is, as long as, you, as long as you look at me like a son, then I, I think I can do anything. And so far to this day, Andrea and I have always walked into those situations looking more for family realities and those kind of family pieces because if I, if I know that you will treat me like a brother or like a son, then I, I, can, I can really trust God with the rest of that. You see how much of that would change? Do, do, do you realize that instead of me just preaching sermons on, you need to be more united. You need to be, you need to quit arguing with one another. Maybe, again, I should just preach, you remember your family, right? Like you know your family. And sometimes that can be overwhelming. 
I remember, uh, maybe you, you know him, a uh, young man that lived with us for a number of years from Germany named Tomas, and I remember when he accepted Christ, I told him, I said, this is gonna kind of blow your mind, but now we are going to be family, which means like no matter what, until you're dead, I have an obligation to you. What? And I said, yeah. Like you're like a son to me now. And I'll have tough conversations with you, but like no matter what, like I, I'm, I'm obligated to you because you're family. How many of you feel it with your kids? That obligation. And I'm gonna ask you, this is, a, this is a maturity issue. Do you feel that for your brothers and sisters in Christ? If your first response is, well, I'm afraid they're gonna take advantage of me. Then I need to tell you about a savior that got on the cross. Our first response shouldn't be, but what if they take advantage of me? Our first response should be, I don't mind being overwhelmed. Because then that kind of leads me back to the spirit. Because sometimes I look over on the crowd or the masses as an eldership, as a staff, right? We're overwhelmed by this sometimes. But like this is our obligation. This is our responsibility because we really are family. That's how Paul is describing it. That's why what we do and, how, and what we believe actually have such strong issues. I mean, it's easy for you to not care what people believe if they're not family. I don't care what they believe. They're not my family. I don't care what they do. They're not my family. But when they're family, man, I care what they do. Man, I care what they believe. At least you should. So how someone ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That, that phrase living God is kind of interesting. It is used 15 times in the New Testament. It is referred to the living God. I don't know if I ever really knew this. This is kind of a new idea I had from this, or new idea I was taught during this study. Do you know what the, what, what is the, um, the opposite of the living God? Now you're going to say the dead God. I get that, right? But do you know what he's, you know what he's attacking? You know what, it, particularly the Old Testament, what they're attacking, what they're kind of lining him up opposite to? idols whenever they talk about the living god the living god it's opposed to idols right idols which cannot see and they cannot hear and they cannot help you but we are children of what of the living god so it's not just dead it literally just shows the difference between those people who have and, and, and this is what's interesting if you have a confession that is in you can have a confession on an idol you can have a doctrinal belief that on an idol or on a, something that is not real, right? There are other doctrinal statements that we could have, but if they're connected to an idol, then they're just dead. They go nowhere. Your prayers go nowhere. Your hopes go nowhere. Your direction is nowhere. But if you are actually having a confession that is tied into the living God, now all of a sudden you have something that is true, something that is eternal, something that stands beyond your own life. And so what he is saying here, as you, as you look at this, is that, like, listen, we are, we have a conduct. We have a, a way that we should behave since we're in the household of God, we're family, which is the church of the living God, the called out ones of the living God. And then he's going he's gonna to keep on going. He's going to describe it as a pillar and a buttress. Now, again, we're not English, so I don't know if the word buttress is a, is a, is a kind of a phrase that you, you don't know. I, I don't use the word buttress very often, okay? Um, 
I think that when we look at these words, this is why it's kind of helpful to know, he's taken two words, pillar, this thing that holds up the building, buttress would be the foundation, and this is the, what, what it is built upon, the household of faith, the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And again, that word there is a difficult word to hold on to in our culture, the idea of truth, because we so don't believe in it anymore. We have become such relativists. You have your truth, I have my truth, they have their truth. This is why we're even afraid to say, hey, we've got certain confessions that you need to hold to. I, I have this. Like you might look at me and go, but not you, Jim. No, 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 I, I can be tempted this way. I can be, um, you know what, listen, let's not try to, I like freedom, I love, I, I love individuality. I, I, I want to kind of have the freedom to do what I wanna do, so I'm gonna give you the freedom to what you wanna do. That kind of uh, uh, only one way, way of doing things, it just seems so repressive. What we want is diversity. What we want is uniqueness. Actually, not when it comes to doctrine. I'll, I'll come back to it. How many of you want like diversity when it comes to the foundation of your house? Right? How about how many of you like when you're driving over a bridge or you're getting on an airplane, you just want free thinkers developing these things? Right? On things that matter the most, we want that kind of, on things that are matters of life and death, that's when we want words like foundational, the word buttress works, right? We want things that are stable, why? Because if not, you die. And again, the Bible gives us this very strong admonition that these spiritual components have eternal life and death consequences. So how we behave and the confession that we make are based on the household, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth, okay? See, if I, if I believed that, if I believed that that's what was at stake, I'd have an easier time going, and I hope you can understand, I don't mean this word in the negative sense, I'm um, a little bit influenced by a book I'm reading right now with some college students by Russell Moore called Onward, and uh, in, our, in our study today, he describes our cultural engagement. I know this could be a loaded term, but he said basically the church is at war with culture. Now we don't wage war like the world wages war, so it's not about guns and it's not about violence, but it definitely recognizes there is an opposition, that there is something that is opposing, right? So, so when, I, when I don't know what to say or when I'm tempted to just give in or just mm, say nothing, just be quiet, When I remember that I have the truth, then it's different. See, when, when you see the people that are the most excited about a particular issue, it's because they believe they have the truth. This is why I find it fascinating that people who believe we each have our own truth, when it really comes down to it, they don't believe that. The world, which right now is pushing different agendas, whether it would be uh, the LBGTQ issue, um, uh, whatever it might be, they don't act like this is one other option among many options. It's like, no, this is the way you need to understand it. And they're so forceful with it. It's like, wow, that is really true. And they don't mean true for them, it's true for everybody. Which actually, I kinda like that, that fervor. I mean, I really think that that helps us. It gives us an opportunity to say, why do you care so much about this? Because I think it's true. Okay, great, can we talk about that truth for a moment? 
And this is the truth that we have. This is what the church is. If the church is the family of God, if the church is the household of faith, if it is this kind of foundational piece, do you trust it? Do you trust it? I'm going to give you a, a small plug here. Um, coming up, starting not this Sunday, but the following Sunday, October 9th, we're going to be spending six weeks dealing with, it'll be fun, I promise, in a, in a really deep biblical way, uh, biblical manhood or manhood, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean, what, what should our sexuality look like? How did God design us? Uh, we're going to talk about singleness. We're going to talk about uh, marriage. And we're going to talk about divorce. You know, none of the hot topics. Just manhood, womanhood, sexuality, singleness, marriage, and divorce look at these particular topics, the reason why all of us kind of have a little bit of a, this angst about it is because we have been literally taught that there are many ways in which this can be understood. There are many ways in which you're free and I'm free, we're all free. Who's to say? It is amazing how relativistic or pluralistic we are. Forget about the world. We have a problem in this area. And it's good. And, and by the way, this actually holds me in check because it's not what Jim wants. It's not what Paul wants. It's not what Terry wants. It's not what Mark wants. It's what the Bible teaches. And we submit to it and we recognize that it is the truth. Now he continues in verse 16. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So great indeed, this is our confession, that godliness is mysterious. No, that's not what it says. It doesn't say godliness is mysterious. It says the mystery of godliness. Now, godliness is an easy word. It's a word that describes, uh, sometimes it can describe like religious uh, practices or religious expression, but it, basically us becoming like God, okay, through these uh, both through what, obviously, what Jesus Christ has done for us. Um, but then ultimately, what we, are, what we are dealing with here is this, the, the mystery of godliness. And whenever Paul, when, when I say, when you hear the word mystery, what do you think of? Like things that cannot be known. We're just going to kind of sit back and go, ooh, right? That's kind of how we look at the word mystery. You know, that's never how Paul uses the word mystery. Paul actually uses the word mystery. I think this is interesting. Mysterion in the Greek. Paul uses it in this way only. He uses it something that which at one time was unknown, which is now known through God's revelation. That which was one time unknown, which is now known, because God has revealed it to us. That's the mystery. So there is a little bit of the, an unknown piece, but it was that it was once unknown, but now it's known. What is the mystery of godliness? Okay, and he uses this language in other letters as well. The mystery of godliness is God's plan for us in Jesus Christ. That's the amazing mystery of godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is, in fact, Christ. A song that we have been singing, it uh, seems like to me a, a lot lately, is that concept of in Christ alone. Like, he is the one thing that I have that separates me 
a couple of weeks ago when Drew was preaching. Here was a quote that he used in his sermon that I really, really liked. The difference between him and another really, really nice person is Jesus in him. And that makes all the difference in the world. This is why our conduct is, hey, this is how you need to behave, but it is based upon the ultimate reality that you and I are his children or Jesus Christ in us. That's what godliness is. And that is not mysterious, but it is the great mystery of godliness. So your, the, the transformation in your life is not your self-control. The transformation in your life is not your dedication to be a good person. No, that can be masked, that can be, uh, that, that, that can be faked. You know what cannot be faked? True godliness. True faith, true commitment to Jesus Christ, truly trusting that when I stand before God, it is what Christ has done for me is all that I have to claim. And then living in light of that, living in light of the fact of who God is and what Christ has done for me. See, that is not mysterious, ooh, how does that work? But no, it is profound that at one time that was unknown. What is God's plan for the world? We don't know. Man, I can't wait to see what it is. And then Jesus Christ comes and we have the full reality. So it is God's plan. And it's God's plan is always based in Jesus Christ. That's why he now goes into this somewhat of a, if you look at it, kind of how it's spaced. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of scholars, my Greek professor hated this idea, um, but every other commentator loves it, is that what Paul is doing here is quoting a hymn. Kenny Bowles never liked that idea. He always said, well, if they knew two things, one Greek and two how hymns were done in Greek, uh, they would have a real hard time justifying this. But it definitely looks like something that would be singable. So uh, here's, what, here's what you actually see. So here's this great confession. What is this great confession? It is that he was manifested or revealed or made known in the flesh. He was vindicated, and the word there for vindicate is the word for justified. Uh, that, that's a big deal, that Jesus who he claimed to be was actually verified. That's why the word truth matters so much. That's why when I ask you, this is why it's so critical that we hold on to these deep truths. Are you forgiven by God? Well, yeah. How do you know? Like, how do you know God forgave you? How do you know that God, you know how I know that God forgave me? Because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Can you make that connection? Right? Yeah, but weren't you a really bad person? Yeah, a really bad person. Okay, how do you know that God accepted, accepted like this, this, this plea for forgiveness? Well, because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the biblical answer. And that is this vindication piece here. Vindicated, justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed, the word there is the same word for preached, preached among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up into glory. It, it, it almost sounds like, like the, the chronological development of Jesus' life. He took on flesh and then he did this and this and this. It's, I, I don't think it's chronologically driven. You've got a couple of examples. If you take a look at the orange writing on your, on your, on your paper, you'll notice that, uh, and I think this is probably the best way to understand it, is that what Paul is doing here, whether he's borrowing it as a hymn or it was made as a hymn later, is that he's kind of going back and forth between the earthly and the heavenly. And this is a really strong idea in the Bible. Um, think of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer says what? 
How do we pray to God? God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God, the reign of God in the world is what? That God, where you are in the world that you ultimately control is actually at peace and it is a good, and I want that here. So it is the earthly and the heavenly connections. And so if you look at it, he was manifested in the flesh on earth. He was vindicated by the spirit in heaven. He was seen by angels in heaven and then was also proclaimed among the nations on the earth. He was believed on in the world, that's another earth piece, and then he was taken up into glory, heaven. So heaven, earth, earth, heaven, heaven, earth. Another way that I really like looking at it is that if you look at these in terms of twins, I like this, this, is, this I think is very helpful as well, is that you have the revelation the revelation, the revealing of who Jesus Christ was in both dimensions. This is really big for Paul, especially in the book of Ephesians. What you and I fail to recognize is that what God is doing in the universe is not just like in Stillwater, and it's not just in Oklahoma, and it's not just in America, and are you ready? It's not just in the world. It's actually in the heavenlies, that spiritual realm that you and I wonder about that you and I don't give a much, a much uh, recognition to. And I'm not asking us to go all Frank Peretti crazy. Some of you may know the reference. But I am saying that there is, there is, from the biblical perspective, there is something else that is going on. There is something else that is actually happening. And this is what Paul is making reference to. Uh, and he does this a lot in the book of Ephesians, which is where Timothy is doing this. So after you have the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, you have the witness of who Jesus Christ is. Both angels giving witness. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. That is, that is the watershed question, I would argue, in all human history, but especially for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. That's what separates us from everybody, is what we believe about Jesus. Angels, he is the Messiah, the proclaiming into the world. Uh, or the, the believed amongst the nations, is that they bear witness to him. And then lastly, you have the acceptance. Both on the world stage, as he is believed, and then taken up into glory, what he's received. So however you want to look at it, this is really, one, one, one thing I love about this particular hymn, <laughs> Maybe Kenny Bowles isn't listening to this. Yeah, I doubt if he is. Um, this, this, this proclamation, this confession, is that you have a great summary of who Jesus Christ is and what God has done. And that kind of central idea is good for us to go back. What matters most? This is to be able to differentiate between what matters most and then what becomes like a side issue. These are the things that matter most. Who Jesus Christ is. His incarnation. The justification by the Spirit. The proclamation and the ascension at the end okay so let's move now into chapter 4 verse 1 so the first half if you look at the kind of that red line there on the first half you have the how to behave piece um, although it doesn't get into this minutia and now we're going to talk about um, how to confront okay so you know that there is this we're going to behave like we're, we're family and then how do we confront, and uh, Paul is now for the rest of the, the final three chapters, uh, be a little more exact and specific in terms of Timothy's work 
uh, to confront those who are not listening, uh, who are uh, trying to go in a different direction, and you'll notice that they have ideas that are going to work out into ways that we should behave. Verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Now I'll hold on to that right there, a couple of key ideas. First of all, like where does the Spirit say that? <laughs> right, like he says, man, the, the Spirit clearly says. Like where does the Spirit clearly say that? He may be referring to a number of different things. He may be referring to Matthew chapter 24, verse 11. Because by the way, we believe that like when the Son speaks, the Spirit and the Spirit and the Son and the Father, they're all one, right? And what does Jesus say? Matthew 24, Mark 13, what does Jesus say? That as time moves forward, and I, I don't know if it is, I'm not as big of a fan, for those of you that have heard me teach the Revelation, I'm not as big of a fan that the Bible teaches really, really clearly that right in the last few, it's the most crazy. Because I actually believe that Jesus Christ could come back today. I do. And I believe he could come back tomorrow. And I don't know if this is the worst it's ever been. So I got to let go of one of those ideas. Either it's all going to get worse and then Jesus is going to come back or I don't know how we're going to know that question. I mean, there's definitely been some pretty complicated times in human history. But it definitely gives us this idea, Jesus does, that in the latter times, notice that phrase that's actually found there in verse 1, latter times, um, that, that phrase is kind of a, a Jewish way of describing how God works with his people. And he does, if you take a look at Hebrews, this board's getting full. If you look at Hebrews, chapter 1, it describes it as the former and then the later times, or the last days. So in the former days, God worked through Abraham and the covenant, God worked through Moses and the law, God worked through David as a king, okay, and prophets like Isaiah, that's how God work things. Those were in the former days. But in these last days, how was God chosen to reveal himself and to act? The answer is what? Jesus. And the reason why it's last is not because it's the most terrifying or it's, but it's like God is done making revelation to who he is. And, and one of the reasons why I can believe very easily that there really isn't anything greater to add is because God has already given us himself in Jesus. So you, okay, I'll say something and you tell me something greater and I'll believe, I'll, I'll, I'll change my mind, okay? I'll say something, you say something greater and then we'll decide whether or not there should be something beyond last or later, Jesus. Hmm, I win, right? So that's why, that's what the Hebrew writer says, that's what Paul says. So in the later times, in the past God did it this way, through these covenantal promises, through his, and then God revealed himself in his son, and, and this is it. Nothing else to add to this particular mix, because Jesus is fully God, who he is. And what's going to happen, and, and, and by the way, one other thing I want to add, on the spirit piece, it could be that Jesus' teaching is what he is referring to. It could be his own teaching. Ryan made reference to this last week. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35, Paul gives an address to the Ephesian elders. Oh yeah, that's right. That's where Timothy is. And Paul says, and the Spirit is telling me that this is what's going to happen. One thing that I don't think the church has gotten well, that I think we need to be very, um, at least aware of, but I, I, I think we always fail, most Christian people are worried about outside 
problems. Who's going to be the president? They're all freaking out about outside things, right? Even in terms of the Antichrist. <gasps> Who's the whatever, the leader of the EU or something kind of not biblically based idea? They're all worried about outside influences and outside. That's really not what the Bible seems to be interested in. What the Bible warns against are inside influences. I'm not really that worried about somebody that's outside because it'll be easily discernible. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not one of us. Why would we listen to them? You know what we need to be careful of? Internal issues. By the way, the Antichrist, as mentioned in John's, huh, Antichrist in 1 John, guess where John was writing that letter to? City of Ephesus. Antichrist, actually, he says, the Antichrist will come, as you know, the Antichrist has already come. Many Antichrists have come. And who is the Antichrist? He who denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And they were among us. And they were leading people astray, making people wander off. They were becoming apostate, is what the Greek word is here. To depart from literally means to become apostate, to wander off and away from. How does that happen? That actually happens when someone says, hey, this is the idea that the Bible kind of has. You know what you really should do? You know what you really need to add to this? You know what is better than just this, but also this? Those are the ones that concern me the most. Uh, my dad used to always say, uh, and I love this. My dad, my, and again, I was going to say this. My dad was not a pastor. People think when I talk about my dad, he must have been a pastor. No, not a pastor. But my dad cared for the church. But my dad would always say, well, son, listen, don't get all worked up about the way the world is. Can't do anything about the world. Don't need to worry about the world. Don't need to kind of be confused by the world. The world's messed up. The world's da 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 What we need to really be aware of and care for and love is, is the church. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean he didn't love the lost or he didn't care. That's not what he's saying. But don't get all worked up. It's, it's, the, it's the wolves in sheep's clothing that concern me the most. It's the sins that you and I, kind of going from last week's message, it's the sins that you and I begin to accept. It's the fact that the more that I look at us, and, and the good news is, is that we all get only one life to live. And that's why everyone, uh, just read history, everyone is concerned about the influence that the world has had on the church. Everyone always has, from the very beginning. Tertullian was worried about it. <laughs> Augustine was worried about it. Okay, so that's not a new idea. You think it's the worst it's ever been. I promise you, you're wrong. It's been better and worse. Okay? It's, it's good for us to just stop and to recognize that the danger is our greatest danger is clearly internal, okay? And we need to watch that. We need to guard ourselves. Watch your life and your doctrine closely, Paul tells Timothy. So here's that little small word that I want you to see that is so very interesting. Look in still here in verse one. In latter times, right, some, not all, some are going to depart. The, the, the best word for depart there is, it's the word apostate, but this is the way the NRSV translates it renounce some will renounce the faith 
Now, how did they renounce the faith? This is kind of what even in a Bible study that I had earlier this week, we were talking about this question about Christians falling away and all that. I don't want to get, I don't get too, wrapped, too wrapped up in that. But here's one of the questions that we never, this is a, this small little word, two letters, B-Y. Because whenever we get into these debates about can a person lose their faith or not lose it, what people never really discuss is like, what would it look like even if it is, or even if it, what does it actually look like? And notice what Paul says. This is what it means to be apostate. This is what it means to depart from or to renounce. Why? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So let me just ask you this question. Can someone be devoted to the teachings of demons and deceitful spirits and still be a believer in Jesus Christ? If you say yes, I've got some real concerns. Now, again, there's a couple of different ways in which we could answer, well, how did they get there? That's beyond the scope of this. But notice the by. The by, in terms of this wandering off, is not, I said a bad word, or I didn't go to church for three consecutive weeks. No, it's by what? By following deceitful teachings, by following things that are taught by demons. Now, again, this is where it gets interesting. What this is doing is helping us recognize there are going to be people that are going to be the ones doing it, okay? Because it's not like a demon is going to walk in and we're going to recognize the demon. And by the way, the demon would probably look beautiful. The demon would look, the demons are angels. You know that, right? So they're, they're wonderful looking creatures. Paul says, if I or an angel of light should come and preach a gospel other than the one that has been delivered to you, may he, may he be anathema, may he be God damned. That's what he says. Beautiful angel, okay? So it's people doing this, but who's behind it? When you pull back the people, who's behind it? And what you actually see is that there is something that is going on behind it. There are demons influencing. Now, again, I don't even think this is what's being described here as demon possession like we see in the Gospels. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that you and I are not fighting just a mere war against flesh and blood. But what? Against the principalities and the powers, the rulers of this dark age. Now, I know it is hard for us to imagine that because we are so educated now. We are so intelligent that this idea of angels and demons sounds like a really bad Tom Hanks movie. Like, I really have to lean hard. I really have to trust that the Bible is true in order to get to the point where I see what's actually going on. What is going on with these lies? What is going on? And it, it actually, it, it, it helps me understand that the mouthpiece for this heretical teaching is the mouthpiece for something that is much more demonic behind it. And I need to be reminded, and, and this is one of the reasons why the concept of like fighting them, this concept of like legislating it, how do you legislate against demonic influence? You can't. So what do we do, Jim? We can't do anything. No, actually, you know what we can do? We can teach the truth. We can preach Jesus. You know what we can do? We can see the Holy Spirit transform. And I'm not going to, I, I, I fight constantly. I cannot neglect what is going on behind all of these things. So 
in latter times, meaning before Jesus Christ come back, there are those who will renounce the faith by the means devoting themselves to these things. It says, through, another means word, the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared. So notice the deprivation. And one of the things that I love is that when you look at these things, conduct and confession over time link up. What did Jesus say? You know, you really never really know about a person because only their heart is knowable and you can't really know anything about people. No, that's not what he said at all. Jesus actually made it quite clear. You and I have mightied it up. Jesus says what? By the fruit on the tree, you will know the person. Did he not? You and I go, you can't know anybody. Jesus said, yeah, you can. You can tell by the fruit. Now, you need to be discerning so that you can check whether or not that's real fruit or not. But if you know the fruit, if you know, Paul says, examine yourselves so that you will know that you're in the faith. Well, how can we really, really, really know? By knowing the truth? Like we can know. Do you believe that we can know? Do you believe that we can discern? Now, now by the way, I will always say that and then hold out, I'm never claiming the same ability to know like God knows. Okay, I, I can only know like a human could know. Okay, but by the way, a human that has the word of God and the spirit of God with the people of God. Don't underestimate those three things. Okay, that's why we've been talking a lot in our staff meetings lately about what is known as, um, uh, what is it, Ryan? What we've been talking about, the humility of orthodoxy. Is it humility? The humility of orthodoxy, which basically says, since I'm just one, since I just live in this time period, I need to, I need to submit myself to the orthodox teachings that have, that have lasted for 2,000 years. And for me to say, yeah, you know what? Um, I think I and my generation know better about sexual orientation, about, about how to treat a woman, about how to treat a husband, about how to be a man, about how to deal with my sexuality. I, we know better than anybody. You realize how crazy that is? You realize how absolutely um, uh, prideful that is? And Paul is describing here that when you have this insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared, and how do they do this? This is what we actually see. They do this. They forbid marriage, and they require abstinence from food. This is a way that we try to be spiritual. By what? By relegating sex to the sidelines and saying you shouldn't have it. This is probably tied into the idea when you look at First and Second Timothy that there are some false teachers that are saying the resurrection has already happened. And Paul's going, no, that's not true. Paul makes it very clear. Even though, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, hey, if, if, if you can stay single and stay committed to the kingdom, that's not a bad thing. That, that kind of devotion and dedication is actually a good thing. But he says, but by the way, if you do marry, and then he begins to describe it, like don't withhold sex from one another. Don't think that sex is bad or dirty or wrong. And this is where the church has gotten it wrong. Interestingly enough, I, I bet you few of you know this, because I just found this out actually a few hours ago, and I thought I, that was, seems kind of strange. Do you know who revived sex as a healthy gift from God? Are you ready for this? The Puritans. Yes, this is what the commentator said. Yes, Puritans. 
during the 12, 13, all the way actually, even all the way back to the early church, Tertullian and Augustine, some actually, one, one, Ambrose actually said, it would be better for, the human, for humanity to become extinct than for us to be embridled in our lustful passions. And he's talking in a marriage context. And the church got it wrong for a really, really long time. And then all of a sudden the Puritans come along and they say, they, here, it's interestingly enough, you know what they did? They read the Bible. And they went, wait a second, sex is like what holds men and women, and hu- or husbands and wives, not just men and women, husbands and wives together. It's actually a good thing given, given to us by God that shows us how to be intimate and to give and to receive. It's this wonderful thing. The Puritans changed everything. Notice how dangerous it is to look at the idea of what is happening in the world from a worldly perspective. Abstinence. And Paul says, no, look how he concludes. They tell people, nope, don't marry, abstain from food. And then he says this, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. Nothing is to be rejected if It is received with thanksgiving. Now, by the way, that's not a formula, but this is the beauty of it, is that when we look at, Matt Chandler does a great job teaching this. When we look at food and we say, oh, isn't God good? Isn't isn't God good? Just the way that he's made the mouth and the way that he has made the smells and the way that, is God not good? Now, all of a sudden, instead of food being the ultimate end, God is the ultimate end. See, everything that God has made is good. Man, isn't God good? The way that he's made the human body and the heart and the mind to respond sexually. Is that not a good thing? Yes, it's a good thing. Now, we can pollute it and destroy it and turn things like food and marriage and sex into very dark and despairing things. But God made it good, and it is to be received with thanksgiving. God, thank you for giving me this. See, that is worship. And when God created everything in the book of Genesis, what did he say? Behold, it is good. If it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy, the word there is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Which again is not a formula, but the word of God goes back to the truth. Do you know the truth about food? You know how like food should be used? Do you know how sex should be used? Do you, do you know how the basic things in life, every aspect of our lives, do you know how it should be used? See, where you and I get into trouble is when we take something that God has given us and we put it to the very, very top and it becomes God. That's when we begin to destroy things. But when you receive it with thanksgiving and you understand what it is, wow, God is good and everything that he made is good. And the truth about that, that God made everything good, is our confession. And the more that we live in that and we think about that, it shapes how we live. Final thing that I'll say is take a look at the little phrase, fourth line from the bottom. It says, thanksgiving by those who believe and know. Those who believe and know. The word believe in that sentence, what part of speech is it? Believe and know. Does anybody know? What kind of, what kind of, for those of you grammaticians, what? Verb. Uh-uh, it's an adjective. 
go and find out what that means. Love you guys. Believe is not a verb there. It's adjectival. Go figure that one out. We'll talk next Sunday or next Wednesday or whatever.